walking through the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, that's the series we're in. Uh, so we're going to do that today. So if you have a Bible or device you want to turn or swipe, go to Hebrews chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. Before we look at some of the verses that we're talking about this morning, though, I'm going to uh, just give a brief uh, reminder of where we've been thus far. So the subtitle of our Hebrew sermon series is Jesus is Better. And what we've heard over and over throughout this series from the author of this letter is that Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to everyone and to everything. Jesus is what we need. And right now we're in a longer section of the book of Hebrews that's emphasizing Jesus' priestly role. And if you've been following along with this, what you maybe have noticed is that we keep revisiting themes we've talked about already. So it kind of reminded me of, like, if you ever go on a tropical vacation or, like, a beach vacation, especially if you're from Minnesota, uh, and you're coming to the end of that vacation, and the last night you're there, you want to walk down the beach and you want to take in all the sights and the smells and the, the, the things that you want to remember one last time. So you try to cement them into your mind, like this is what it was like. These are the things that I really enjoyed while I was there. It, it kind of feels like the author of Hebrews is, is kind of giving just another walk down the beach as it pertains to Jesus' priestly role and how important this is in the scheme of Christianity. So when I say Jesus' priestly role, what, what I'm basically talking about is Jesus does what's necessary so that we can be near to God. So we have sinned, separated ourselves from God, but Jesus does what's necessary so that we can be near to God. He creates this movement to draw us. He first comes near to us, but then so that we can draw near to him. And last week, Robert emphasized this idea of movement. So part of what, what he was talking about was in the Old Testament, there's something known as the Day of Atonement in the life of Israel. And the Day of Atonement is when the whole of the nation of Israel would gather together. And kind of the religious leader, the high priest, would go into the tent or the temple and he would offer a blood sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. He's atoning for the sins of Israel. And so on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would start and make the requisite sacrifice in the temple courtyard. Okay, so he starts in the courtyard, but then he would take a basin of blood from there and he would move into the first part of the temple or the tent. And that first part is what's known as the holy place. But he wouldn't stop there. He would then move into the place that he would go only on the Day of Atonement, which is known as the most holy place. This is the second part of the tent or the temple. And here is where he would encounter God's presence. There he would sprinkle the blood as a sin offering for Israel. And so what we find going on here is this movement towards God. And also what we find in the most holy place, what we're finding is the center of the faith. Okay, and what we find at the center of the faith is blood. And that is why we repeatedly come back in the gospel to Jesus' death on the cross. So similarly to what we see with the high priest, Jesus leaves heaven, 
and he comes to earth. He takes on flesh. He draws near to us. He dies, and then he goes back to heaven. Heaven being the most holy place of God's presence. He enters back into heaven by offering his own blood. And what happened as Jesus did this is he provided a way for us to be able to draw near to God. He's also moving us from the old covenant, the old way of God relating to his people to a new way of God relating to his people. He provides a way for us then to enter into the most holy place. And we read about this as Jesus is in the cr- on the cross in Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. And it says there, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So he died, and behold, when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So the idea, the curtain, is what separates in the temple the holy place from the most holy place. And as this curtain is being torn in two, what Jesus is doing is he's removing the barrier between us and God's presence. He's opening the door or the curtain for us to approach God. And that is why it talks in Hebrews 4.16. We looked at this a number of months ago. It says there, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We are able to boldly go where we once were prohibited from entering. Not after we've made sacrifices. Not after we've appeased God in some way. We're not going to an intermediary. We enter the most holy place to be in God's presence because of what Jesus has provided for us. We go to God himself. So Jesus shed his blood to usher in a better way, to secure for us an inheritance, to fulfill promises that were made throughout the old covenant. So let's pick up where we're going to be this morning Chapter 9, verse 15, we're going to read just one verse here to start. Uh, We'll talk about this, and then we'll, we'll move on to some other verses. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions or from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus died the death that he died. He endured insult and mockery and hatred. He ultimately went to the point of death to bring about or to mediate this new covenant, a new way for people to know God, for people to be forgiven of their sin, for people to be saved from their sins, for people to live with hope and with joy so that these people, we, Humanity could receive the promised eternal inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance. The idea of being with God forever. With his unchanging reality. With his enduring goodness. The goodness of God that we just sang about. It's a description of heaven. Promised eternal inheritance with God forever. 
And I think sometimes maybe for some of us, when we think about heaven, maybe we don't have the greatest idea of what heaven is. Maybe our idea of heaven is, is more constructed by Hollywood than it is what the Bible actually says about heaven. Some of us maybe think of like chubby babies playing harps on clouds, and, and that's the idea of heaven. Or this idea that all the people who are in hell are having all the fun. So if that's your idea of what this promised eternal inheritance, inheritance is, that's, that's strongly, badly misguided. That, that is not what heaven is. God creates us. He knows what we want and what we need. Even though at times we think we know better. But God knows much better than us. And we can be sure that this promised eternal inheritance will satisfy us deeply, deeply satisfy us. Notice also in verse 15, the massive question that is being answered here. And the question is, prior to Jesus, how are sins forgiven? Maybe some of you have had this question as well. Jesus came and he provides forgiveness of sins, but but what about all those sins that were committed prior to him? And what this is saying, what we're reading in Hebrews, is that those sins committed prior to Jesus coming, that they are forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice. So what saves people is faith in God. Faith in God and his promises. But it is Jesus' sacrifice that cleanses us from the condemning, separating stain of sin. The fact that Jesus' sacrifice can wash people of historical sin, looking backward, points to the immense goodness of his sacrifice. But it's not just dealing with looking backwards. It's also looking forwards as well. Because he's also dealing with the future reality of sin in his sacrifice. So for Christians, when we believe the gospel... When we believe in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, that is for past sin, present sin, and future sin. It's amazing the immensity of God's goodness in this paradigm is awesome. Now, if we truly understand the goodness of God in this, we won't look at our sin and be like, well, it's not a big deal because God's going to forgive it. So we can, we can just do whatever we want. We can live like hell and God won't care because he's already forgiven that. I, I would contend that we don't really understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross if that is our perspective. So the author moves on from here to explain what Jesus accomplished with an illustration. So let's read, picking it up in verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we're getting here an analogy about God's covenant by way of a will, this idea of a will. So there's no perfect analogy, so you, you can know that ev- this analogy, like every other one, is going to break down at some point, okay? But the point here that the author's trying to make is that a will goes into effect when the person who established the will dies. So death must happen for a will to be enacted. And the author has gone to great lengths to explain how Jesus' death has enacted the new covenant, this new will, as we might say here. So when Jesus died, he opened up access to God. He set aside the sacrificial system. His death was the crucial event. The fact that Jesus was on the cross is the crucial event to set in motion this new covenant. This is why we talk about the gospel all the time here at Center Church, why we call one another to be gospel-centered. This is the crux of the faith. This is of utmost importance. We cannot overstate its importance. The point of the whole Christian faith is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But we read here that, that, what was also the case, that that was also the case under the Old Covenant. Okay, So in verse 18, it says there, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, there was this ceremony where animal sacrifices were made. The blood that that was taken from those animals then was sprinkled on the people present as a symbolic act of cleansing. Furthermore, we could look at throughout the, throughout the life of the, of the nation of Israel, we see this happening over and over, that blood would be sprinkled on the tent, at the temple, the meeting place with God, on the vessels utilized in the worship of God. Things were sprinkled with blood all the time. It says here everything. Well, it says almost everything, right? Verse 22, it says almost everything. So uh, an example here of something that maybe wouldn't be sprinkled with blood or where blood is not required. So if, if somebody was too poor to have, uh, to afford like a, an animal that they would need to sacrifice, there was provision within the old covenant for them to maybe offer flour or something that would be less expensive as a sin offering. So, so even in that harsh law, the law that we know as like the ministry of death, the old covenant, even there we see kind of these whispers of grace that, that God is a gracious God looking out for people. Now, it may seem weird to us this idea that blood purifies, right? Blood is messy. Blood stinks. I think many of us would say blood is nasty, right? But here, blood purifies. So, I think it's very natural for us to wonder, why is blood utilized in this way? This seems upside down. Why is blood utilized in this way? In the third book of the Bible, 
uh, the book of Leviticus, there's a verse, chapter 17, verse 11, that I think is really helpful. It says there, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So the idea here is that as blood courses through our bodies, it provides life. It's giving life to us. So blood, in a sense, possesses life. And a loss of blood, of enough blood, will result in death. So, so here we see kind of both sides. Blood is, is connoting both life and death, right? And so we know that one must have blood to have life. But the emphasis in these verses is that blood had to be shed in order for someone to possess true, real life. Death had to occur. And this is why Jesus is so important. Under the old covenant, people would sacrifice an animal. Blood would be shed for their sins. But that sacrifice only dealt with their sins in an external way. People offered sacrifices in what we would call a ceremonial way. They sinned in a specific way, and then the law mandated that they observe a sacrificial ceremony to atone for their sins. The animal blood that was shed purified those people then in an external, temporary way. So there was a form of cleansing, right? But it didn't go deep. It's like taking a shower, right? We take a shower, and we're clean for a bit. But then the next day or the next afternoon or whenever, we're going to need another shower. We're going to stink. We're going to be dirty. It's going to happen, right? That's essentially what happened with these sacrifices. But the sacrifice did not cleanse someone's conscience. It didn't change their affections. It didn't change their heart in any way. It doesn't forgive sin in every way Needed. It could not provide what was needed in a permanent, lasting sense. We needed a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, to fully deal with every aspect of sin, of dirtiness within us. We need to be changed. We needed death by love. And that's what Jesus gives us. And that's what we see in this metaphor of the will. Okay, so the metaphor of a will, what it's doing is communicating grace. Okay? The beneficiaries of a will, they are not the ones who are negotiating the terms. Right? My parents have created a will for my sister and I. We didn't sit down and negotiate, oh, I'd like this, and, and she'd like this. And let's, my, my parents, they just wrote up the will. Right? We didn't negotiate the terms. What we get out of that will is a gift to us. So, in this idea of a will is the idea of people being given a gift. Now, we live in Minnesota, so when it comes to Christmas time, right, if, if you get a gift from somebody, you probably feel some obligation to give them a gift back. Right? Or, even without someone giving you a gift, you might feel obligated to give somebody a gift. But here's the reality about gifts. Gifts are gifts, which means 
they're undeserved. A gift is unearned. I, I don't give gifts to my kids at Christmas because they've been so obedient. I give gifts to them to show love to them. Also to communicate the gospel story to them as well. But, but because I love them. Not because they've deserved this in any way. To demand a gift, to expect something from somebody else, will mean we have moved on from grace. In the New Testament, there's a story of a son. Many of you might know him as the prodigal son. This son goes to his dad, and he demands an inheritance from his dad. So what we would say, what he might receive in the will when his dad died. But he demands this inheritance that, that is due him, due him, right, before his father actually dies. So what this son is doing is he's presuming upon grace. He's entitled. And entitlement leads down a very different road than grace. What we find in entitlement, if we are entitled people, entitlement will cause us to minimize our sin. Entitlement will cause us to think we can pay off our sin or we can offset our sin in some way. Entitlement says that we, we think that we can dictate our own terms as it, as it pertains to God. And that's what that son thought as well. But what he did after his father gave him this gift, which he for sure did not deserve, is he left and he squandered that wealth away. And he found himself in a very bad spot in life where he was eating the food of pigs. He found himself immersed in shame. And one day he comes back to his father pleading that his father would be merciful and just allow him to be a servant, to be his father's slave. When we understand what grace is, it leads to thankfulness. Grace does not lead us to thinking that we can just live in any way we want, that we can sin in any way or minimize sin in any way. Grace leads to thankfulness. So what we find here in Hebrews, as we look at this idea of shedding of blood, there is a necessity of blood for God's forgiveness. There's a necessity of blood for God's forgiveness. And this must be understood as grace. Unearned. Undeserved. But Jesus offered up his blood on our behalf to provide a new and better way for us. All right, let's pick this up in verse 23 now. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all 
at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, I want to give just a couple of brief summaries here about the first four verses, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our remaining time on the last couple of verses. So verses 23 and 24, these are speaking to the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, what's not being said here is that heaven was impure. Okay, the author's not trying to say that heaven was impure, that that's not possible. Okay, but it's an emphasis on the goodness and the extent of what the shedding of Jesus' blood accomplishes. If heaven needed to be purified, his blood would accomplish that. It is that good, that great. It purifies even the greatest reality, which you would say is heaven itself. Verses 25 and 26. These are reminding again the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Jesus didn't need to offer repeated sacrifices. One sacrifice for all time. His death was an effective death. Okay, then the last couple of verses. So they began by mentioning the judgment that occurs after physical death. All right? So upon death, there's this reality that everyone, Everyone will stand before God and face the reality of our existence. And so we have two options when we stand before God. Two options. We will be judged for our sin by going to an eternal hell. That is one option. We will pay the penalty for our sin. The second option is Jesus was judged for us. So Jesus' blood is shed or our blood is shed. The author of Hebrews writes and implores and warns his readers because he knows this is what awaits people. Judgment awaits people. It's not a loving thing to hide these kinds of realities, to just push this under the rug. We need to talk about the hard stuff. If my kid is doing something that, that's going to harm them, I want to tell them not to do it. I want to tell them why they should not do it. I don't want to just avoid the inconvenience of discipline or of a hard conversation. Blood must be shed for our sin, for your sin. It's either your blood or it's Jesus' blood. And what we find here in these verses that we're looking at this morning is a principle that's hinted at throughout the whole of the Bible. And it pertains to this idea of life. Where is life? How, how do we find life? Jesus himself said, I am the life. So there's part of our answer right there. Jesus is 
where we find life. But, but there's another part to this conversation. The precursor to life is death. Death precedes life. And we see this throughout the Bible, okay? So one of the, the main events in the Old Testament is that of the Exodus. So God's people are enslaved in Egypt. He comes to them. He's going to set them free from slavery, okay? They're in this existence where they feel death all around them. Slave labor, okay? No hope for them. They, they can't break out of Egypt themselves. They are oppressed. They feel death all around them. They call out to God. God comes to them. He sends a deliverer. He sends them life out of death, deliverance out of slavery. So God leads them out of Egypt then, but there's this really interesting thing that happens. It's almost as though he puts them back into slavery right away. He gives them the Ten Commandments, which is a form of slavery. And God gives them the Ten Commandments as a way to teach them, to show them you cannot save yourself. So God gave his people the law. What I mentioned earlier, we read in the New Testament, is the ministry of death. But that's not the end of the story. To resolve the law, to fulfill the law, God sends his son. He gives us the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He brings life out of death. And the death of the old covenant leads to the good news of the new. Jesus' death leads to our spiritual life. So, so there's this reality. Death precedes life. We, we have to move from death to life. We see this in our own lives repeatedly. So think of a kid, a young kid playing with toys. Let's say this young kid loves this toy that they're playing with, and they don't want to share it with other kids, right? If another kid wants to come in and join, either wants to take the toy or wants to play with them, forms of death are going to ensue. Like that kid might try to beat down this other child stealing the toy, right? Oftentimes, there's a fight or there's tears. Th these are all glimpses of death, right? But think about what happens if the child is able to share the toy. Right? So they welcome in another child or two. They share this toy. They're giggling together. They're enjoying this toy together. And joy is multiplied. That's life. We see this all the time. The need to move from death to life. You see it in parenting. To be a parent means one has to die to itself. Uh, to be a good parent means one has to die to self. In order to love one's children, you have to get over yourself. In order to care about your child in the middle of the night when it's inconvenient for you, you have to get over yourself, albeit imperfectly. Today, many parents find kids an annoyance because they inconvenience the parents' selfish pursuits. But the reality is, life comes through death and we see this displayed in many facets of life we also read about this continuously in the bible 
In the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, we read there that to follow Jesus means we must die to self. And there is imagery of the cross in there. This idea of dying to self means that we pick up our cross. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But Jesus has promised to provide us everything that we need in this promise or or in this process. To follow Jesus means you must come to the end of yourself. We read in Romans 6.11 that we must die to sin. Another part of Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 3, I don't have this on a slide, but it talks there that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. That's what Jesus did. He condemned sin in the flesh. We also see Galatians 2.20. Paul says there, I have been crucified with Christ. This idea, th- this is why baptism is so important for us here at Center Church. What happens in baptism is someone goes down into the water. And as they go into the water, what they're saying is, I'm identifying with Jesus' death. I'm dying with Jesus as he died. And as they come out of the water, what they're saying then is, I am being raised to life with Jesus. There's this strong picture of identification with what has happened with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It demonstrates this essential aspect of dying to self. But if we're honest, this really crushes us. Death to self really crushes us because it's hard. It's really hard. The sea of consumerism we swim in daily tells us the exact opposite of die to yourself. It says, you deserve, and you get to fill in the blank. It doesn't matter what it is. You deserve it. You deserve or treat yourself, have it your way. The list goes on and on. What the gospel presents is antithetical to what our culture presents. So what are those worldly passions that rage within you? What what are those things that you desire, that you think will satisfy you? Approval from a specific person? Success in some capacity? salary range a size of house is it a position lust a certain form of beauty comfort but what excites you what do you find yourself looking forward to what what's on the horizon that you keep thinking about you don't even have to try to think about it you just naturally think about that thing. It says in these verses that we just read that Jesus is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
I was reading that this week and just thinking about it, and it just is like a punch in the gut. Do you anticipate Jesus' return? Do you long for it? Do you even think about it? Or are you nervous about that event? Or do you find yourself thinking at times that there's, there's a bunch of things that you'd like to do before Jesus comes? And, and in that, suggesting that those things might be better than Jesus' arrival. This picture here of eagerly waiting for Jesus envisions what happened yearly in Israel on the Day of Atonement. When that high priest would enter into the most holy place. So it's thought that when that priest would go in, they would tie a rope around his foot in case when he went into the God's presence, the, the sacrifice being offered wasn't sufficient and, and he would die there for some reason. But there's this reality. He's going in to offer the sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And so what's happening at that time in the nation of Israel is they're all gathered together. They're watching. They're leaning in. They've gathered together to mourn, right? This is a day of mourning for them. But they're also leaning in as the, pre the high priest goes into the most holy place and they're wondering, is the sacrifice acceptable? Is it good enough? Will God be appeased? And the beauty about the gospel is we don't need to wonder. Because we don't have to make the sacrifice. Jesus has made that sacrifice already. It is acceptable. We need to receive what he offers to us. Now many people think awaiting Jesus' arrival for a second time is silly. That it's, it's like a fairy tale. Or this idea of being sprinkled with blood is gross. Now, to be honest, there's no reason we should be sprinkling blood on one another. Th th there's no commandment for that. That would be weird. That would be weird. Okay? There's many individual parts of the Christian faith or that we could go to in the Bible and we could say, that is weird. That is really odd. Right? But if we understand these things in the whole of the biblical story, when we put these things together, it is unbelievably compelling. It does make sense. The usage of blood that we're talking about here today is sensible because it communicates to us this reality. Your sin is a big deal. Blood had to be shed for your sin. What Jesus accomplished is a big deal. His love for you is serious. He is serious about loving you. In the same way that our sin is serious, His love for us is also serious. So a couple points of gospel application for us as we wind down today. First of all, the blood of Jesus redeems and purifies us. The blood of Jesus redeems us and it purifies us. We are sinful, unclean people 
separated from God aside from Jesus. I came across this quote from a man named William Lane this week. He said, sin is not only a violation of God's law, but it is also a violation of our personhood. It makes us dirty. Our sin makes us dirty. True cleansing only comes through Jesus. There's nothing else that will cleanse us. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't say enough prayers. You can't do enough good things. You can't tell enough people about Jesus to cleanse your conscience, to receive forgiveness from Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, as it said in verse 22 that we we read today, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And there's no other blood that can be shed to accomplish forgiveness. It's a specific blood. It's Jesus' blood. His blood was the perfect sacrifice for us. And this is why, for Christians, the cross of Jesus can never get old. It can't ever get old. It always has to be central. It always has to be primary for us. It is everything. The cross of Jesus is everything. Today, tomorrow, when we lay our heads down tonight, the cross of Jesus is everything. It has to be everything to us and for us. And where it is not, we should see that, hear that, feel that as a corrective. Why is the cross not that important to us? The cross is everything for those who know what is being accomplished on it. If you're a non-Christian, this is an offer for you to step off the treadmill of trying to do enough so God might accept you. There is nothing you need to do, nothing you can do to receive God's forgiveness. You just need to believe, to trust in Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. So the good news of the gospel is that the blood of Jesus redeems us and purifies us. Secondly, We read this in verse 26. Jesus puts away sin. When he came for the first time, he came to put away sin. When he comes a second time, he's not coming to put away sin. He has done that. He's coming to save. So this is a huge statement. The fact that Jesus put away sin. If you are a Christian, or non-Christian we could say, Do you ever feel stuck in your sin? Do you ever feel stuck in a specific sin? Do you ever feel defeated by it? Hopeless? In going to the cross, what Jesus is doing is he is driving a stake in the heart of sin. And he's saying, sin no longer possesses power over those trust in him we have what we need to overcome that which seeks to kill us the power of the gospel the good news of jesus is what we need jesus has stripped sin of its power he has revealed it for what it is he has made it naked sin has no power over us aside from what we give to it Now, we are still in our sinful flesh. We will still be tempted. That's part of our reality. But trusting Jesus, trusting Jesus means 
when we are tempted, we can say no. We can turn from that sin. We can turn towards Jesus. And we can know the life that is found in him. Not existing in the death of sin that haunts us, but rejoicing in the life of freedom from sin. So in a spiritual sense, we need to be sprinkled with Jesus' blood in order to be cleansed from the dirtiness of our sin and so that we are able to turn away from sin and live in such a way that our lives honor God. So going back to the metaphor of the will, I want to end with this. Is your name on that will? Is your name on that will? The way your name gets on that will is by believing in Jesus' sacrifice. Not by a bunch of religious exercise. It's by believing in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done for us. You came to a reality that you knew would require discomfort and suffering that would cause you to be mocked and hated, mistreated. And yet you came. You came because of love. You died because of love. This is a message that will change our hearts, that will transform us, that will move us from living for ourselves to now living for you. So God, would you help us to see the beauty of the gospel where we have unbelief? Would you help us to believe? Would you help us to treasure the shedding of Jesus' blood uh, above anything else in the midst of our day-to-day as we shop for groceries, as we pick kids up, as we're in a daily commute and rush hour, as we do work around our house, would you remind us over and over and over and help us to treasure this reality. God himself has shed his blood for undeserving sinners. There is no greater news in this world. May it change us. May we delight in it. In your great name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We're going to sing couple of songs of response, reflecting on the fact that Jesus has shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We're also going to observe this. If you're a Christian, you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, we want to invite you guys to observe by taking the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, Jesus' body and blood are symbolized in the bread and the cup. We're reminded of this reality that he gave up everything to pay the price for our sins. And so I invite you guys to go and do that in the back as we sing these songs.